The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Thank you for coming. So last week, if you weren't here, I talked about the distinction between directed and non-directed meditation practices. So in the sit tonight, you probably noticed that I was given instructions for mindfulness of breathing through the first half. And then a non-directed practice where we're not directing the attention to any particular object, or you could say we're directing the attention only to the present moment and not clinging to whatever is being known in the present moment. It's a different kind of meditation strategy, you could say. But don't feel like you always have to divide your practice up the way we did tonight. That's more as an instruction, so you get a sense of the two ways of practicing. And, of course, there are many variations within the whole range of non-directed meditation. There are many different varieties, and within the range of directed meditation practice, there are many ways to do that, too. But just a sense, so that you know, you have a sense, like, well, how am I going to work with my mind tonight when I sit, or tomorrow morning when I sit? But I want to come back. Uh, We've been looking at Ajahn Chah's wonderful book, Food for the Heart. Ajahn Chah, if you haven't heard yet, is a was a well-known uh, Thai Buddhist monk, a meditation master who died in 1992, I believe, and uh, just a great teacher. And so we're looking at his book, and some of the teachings in that book are really directed toward lay people, and some of the teachings are more directed toward monks and nuns. And so we have to, sometimes, especially in this chapter, or these two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, it's really important that we do an active translation, especially whenever we're encountering teachings on renunciation. Because generally in the Buddhist tradition, and especially when uh, the teachings are directed toward the monks and nuns, renunciation and living simply this is a high value, a deep value. But we want to not get confused because it can sound like the world is bad. You know, the world of things, the world of relationships, the world of wealth and power and life itself is somehow a dangerous thing. So we always have to be understanding that the, the danger is only in terms of the mind's attachment or the mind's tendency to grasp or to cling to things of the world. It's not the world itself that's dangerous. The danger is when the mind gets attached, or it thinks, in other words, it thinks that its happiness is a function of what it has. Now, right now, we could just do a simple reflection as I'm talking. Just reflect on, like, where are we deriving, right now, where are we deriving some security in our lives? Generally, it's because we're attached to things that appear to us to be solid or permanent, like we feel relatively healthy. And we're attached to that. Or we feel like we got some money in the bank or some money in the pocket. And that's like a source of satisfaction. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't nice to have money or it isn't nice to be healthy or it isn't nice to be loved by our friends or by our partner. Is it nice to have kids that are 
respectful or you know, whatever. Have a house that's secure and well put together. These things are nice. But as Ajahn Chah talks about in these chapters, they're not really refuges in a, in a permanent sense. They're more like temporary shelters. We get temporarily supported when we're around people who are kind and loving, know us well, and are there for us. But if we think that it's an end, like, okay, now I'm safe, then we're deluded because there isn't any ultimate safety in friendship and health and money or anything of the world. And we need to reflect on this. Now, you know, when the monks or nuns, one of the ways they practice this is they, compared to us lay folk, they radically let go of a lot of the things of the world. You know, they're not having sex. They're not involved in intimate relationships. They're supposed to have friendships that are sort of, you know, like the, not getting dependent. Like even in, some of you have heard of Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, who's become quite well known over the decades and been kicked out of Vietnam long ago. So he's been teaching mostly in the West and France and the United States and around the world. But uh, one of the rules he has for the monks and nuns um, in the monasteries, they often room in double rooms, uh, two people per room. But he doesn't want people to get dependent on one friendship. So after a while, if you have a really good friend, he might separate the monks, and so they're living in different, or the nuns, so they're living in different monasteries, or have them room with different people. The idea being, you want your love to be indiscriminate, like friendliness, love that goes everywhere equally, not just for my partner, not just for my kids, not just for the people who are in my circle. So for the monks and the nuns, you know, they they practice by letting go of a lot. They eat, you know, in the Theravada tradition, they don't eat an evening meal. You can eat from the time in the morning when you can see the lines in your hand, you know, dawn. That they, they determine it because back at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have watches. So they'd look like this out in an open space. And if they could see the lines in their hands, then they could go collect alms. You know, bring their bowl, walk through the town, get some food from the... Because they can't store food overnight. And they can eat until 12 noon, from dawn until 12 noon. And then for the rest of the day, they let go of eating as an activity. It's just not there. It's not a possibility. No, they can eat plenty. I mean, you're not going to starve if you can eat for that many hours every day. But it's a real letting go. It's like, that's not something we can do for the rest of the day. And you could think, well, the Buddha thinks eating is bad. But it's really giving us an opportunity to see the mind's dependency on things, on things of the world. And it really raises the energy in this chapter, in one of these chapters, 7 and 8. Ajahn Chah says, the decline and dissolution of all compounded things. That this is a reflection. And it, it isn't morbid. It's just the way that it is. All compounded things do fall apart. There's a very poignant time in the, at the time of the Buddha, and his attendant, who was also his cousin and had been his attendant for 20 years, a younger monk, um, found out that the two chief disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta and 
Venerable Moggallata, these two great teachers in and of themselves, but they were sort of students of the Buddha, but often taught when the Buddha wasn't available, had passed away. They were actually a little older than the Buddha, so they died before the Buddha, just so happens. And they weren't around the Buddha when they died, so, you know, they, one of the monks from where they were came and told Ananda, and then Ananda told the Buddha that Sariputta and Moggallana had died. And Ananda says to the Buddha, you know, it's as if my mind was drugged, became dim by the sorrow, by the pain of, of hearing that news, you know, as if my body became unsteady. And the Buddha questioned him, well, how is this, Ananda, when Sariputta had his final passing away? Did he take from you your portion of virtue, like the goodness in your heart? Did he take that when he died? Did he take your portion of concentration from your mind when he died? Or your portion of knowledge and vision of freedom? And Ananda, his attendant, answered, No, sir. When the Venerable Sariputta had his final passing away, he did not take my virtue, my concentration, my wisdom, my deliverance, or my portion of knowledge or vision of freedom. But Venerable Sir, Sariputta had been to me a mentor, a teacher, an instructor, one who roused, inspired, gladdened, untiringly, untiring in preaching the Dhamma, these good teachings a helper of his fellow monks, and remember how vitalizing, enjoyable, and helpful his instructions were. Right? So he's just saying that I really liked Sariputta. He was an important mentor to me. But the Buddha is, you know, Ananda, you know, is a serious practitioner and somebody who's been around practicing for a long time. And the Buddha really wanted to bring home this point about dissolution. And he says to Ananda, not to scold him in any way, but just to remind him, like, ask him, why, how is it that you're surprised that Sariputta has died? This is a really, actually, an important barometer. It's not that we don't experience loss, but the destabilizing effects of loss, this can be overcome by not being surprised. Because we know that anything can happen any time. This happens all the time for all of us. And so uh, the Buddha says to Ananda, Have I not taught you, Ananda, that it is in the nature of all things near and dear to us that we must suffer separation from them and be severed from them? Of that which is born, come into being, put together, and so is subject to dissolution. Now, anything that has arisen, been born, put together, whether it's an idea or a human being or a building, the Buddha says, is subject to dissolution. How should it be said that it should not depart? That indeed is not possible. It is, Ananda, as though from a mighty hardwood tree. So he's referring now to the, to the sort of momentum of men and women doing the practice and kind of gaining the insights from the practice. He says, he's comparing it to a mighty tree, mighty hardwood tree. Um, a large branch should break off. Right? So there's a big, healthy tree, but one of the main branches is broken off. That's the death of Sariputta. 
and Mogalana. So has Sariputta now had his final passing away from this great and sound community of practitioners. Indeed, Ananda, of that which is born, come to being, put together, and so is subject to dissolution, how should it be said that it should not depart? This indeed is not possible. Therefore, Ananda, be an island unto yourself, a refuge unto yourself, seeking no external refuge. With the teaching as your island, the teaching as your refuge, seek no other refuge. So the Buddha is saying, not so much my ego is my refuge, but this understanding, this reflection that everything comes and goes. And this is, this is really at the heart of the Buddhist teachings. This is why the monastic culture is sort of held up as a archetype for all of us, even us lay people, even though we do have Hopefully, some money, you know, we have place to stay, we have objects, possessions, we have relationships, permanent relationships to some degree with other people, with our kids, with our families. We don't leave behind the world as is done in the monastic communities. And really, most religious traditions, or many of them, have this tradition of leaving behind. Even as lay people, we do that. We go on a 10-day retreat, or we go on a weekend retreat, or we come over here to the center for a half-day retreat. And for that four hours, we leave behind our duties and responsibilities. We leave behind being a social being. We don't talk with one another during our retreats here at Common Ground, and, and often in Buddhist retreats. You're not really talking, so it's not, you're not like uh, trying to connect and figure out who you like and who you don't like. You just leave behind all of that for a period of time. Because those things ultimately, our social relationships, our possessions, ultimately aren't going to take care of us. And so let's practice not being surprised by what it feels like to be separated from them. To be reflecting that all of the relationships that we derive so much support from, they will be otherwise eventually. Those people won't be here. We won't be in relationship with them. We know that. And it really, uh, it increases this uh, vital force of interest. Where is there a refuge in this world that is put together and then falls apart? We live in this world. Where is the refuge? At one point, the Buddha said that the stress we experience in life, the suffering we experience in life, it can lead to two things, one of two things. It can either lead us to, and he says something like, beating our breasts, pulling our hair out, lamenting, lost in sorrow and lamentation, or experiencing difficulty in life can raise the question, who is it, where is it that somebody knows something about freedom from this suffering? Where, In other words, where is there a true refuge? Is there a true refuge? But just to be really honest, do I know of a true refuge? If not, do I know anybody who seems to think they know of a true refuge? And what do they say? And if I check it out, what do I learn? Like, are we interested in that refuge, or are we content with taking refuge in things that are only temporary shelters, you know, that provide some satisfaction, some pleasant experience for a period of time? 
and then it changes. Taking refuge in our health until we're not healthy anymore, or our youth until we're not young anymore, or till the stability of our relationship until it becomes not so stable, or to our wealth until we don't have wealth, or whatever it might be, the orderliness of our culture until it's not orderly anymore. Because all these things come and go. Ajahn Chah says, we wouldn't be so stuck up to the ears and things if we could see them as they really are. Hair, nails, teeth, skin. What are they really like? Are they pretty? Are they clean? Do they have real, any real substance? Are they stable? No, there's nothing to them. They're not pretty, not substantial, but we imagine them to be so. So he, he mentions these four things. As it's traditionally said, hair the, hair the head, hair the body, nails, teeth, and skin. Because it's one of the first instructions when you get formally ordained in the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, one of the first reflections that your preceptor will say to you is, contemplate, hair the head, hair the body, nails, skin, and teeth. And the idea is that when we take something so commonplace, you know, which we tend, you know, we generally... We, we have one of two attitudes about the body, and for most of us, we swing back and forth, rarely in a neutral territory, where we are infatuated with our body, you know, we think we look pretty cool, or we're disgusted with our body. And it's, you know, usually one or the other, and sometimes it's like seconds apart, you know, where we're either disgusted or infatuated with our body. And, uh, but what the Buddha is suggesting, and the reason why this is a tradition in, in a in the monastic culture at least, it's like to take a closer look and to realize that any infatuation, any idealistic notions we have of the body, we need to strip away. But in the Western culture, we tend to have equal doses of repulsion and sort of a unhealthy negativity of the body, <coughs> especially some people. And also that needs to be stripped away because the fundamental truth is the body is neither pretty nor is it ugly. It's just what it is. And it's interesting when you contemplate something very ordinary like nails or teeth. I mean, nails at least we can see pretty easily. Teeth, you need a mirror, right? Skin. Something ordinary like that, hair. And you can really, initially, you know, it's like my hair. Is it clean? You know, is it neat? Do I need to trim? You know, my nails, are they clean? Do they need to be trimmed? Oh, they're looking pretty good. But to kind of cut through the repulsion or the attraction, the infatuation, and just to see it's just a nail. It's neither beautiful nor ugly. And to see it in its functionality. You know, to see our animal nature in our teeth that rip food apart, in our nails that we scratch with, you know, the skin that holds it all together. You know, it would be very interesting. If we took the skin off, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between ourselves or anybody else. I mean, that would be amazing. All of a sudden, race wouldn't... I mean, it would be very hard to talk, talk about any differences except perhaps size. But, you know, it wouldn't really hold together very well. <laughs> so even size wouldn't make so much sense. I mean, the differences that we associate with one another is so much just because we're held together with this skin, this bag, you know, that just holds it all together. And what is it anyway? You know, it's literally like a really good bag. 
And to just contemplate it in that neutral, sort of unromantic, non-idealistic way, stripping away infatuation, stripping away disgust, it's just what it is. It's just this membrane. The eyes, all the organs, everything. It doesn't really matter whether you do these, you know, hair of the body, hair of the head, you know, skin, nails, teeth, or some other aspect, or even the sidewalk, or a leaf. It's really what we mean by a moment of mindfulness, where we're not caught, the mind isn't under the influence of the concept, the ideas, the baggage we bring to experience. But it's just experiencing things in and of themselves. Some of you know that one of the main or the most famous discourses the Buddha gave, a discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, where he's talking about being mindful of the body, mindful of feeling, tone, like whether an experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, mindful of the mind itself, like whether the mind's under the influence of aversion or irritation or under the influence of some expansive, beautiful state of mind. So being mindful of all these different aspects of our present moment experience, the Buddha repeats this phrase, I think, 13 times, you know, being aware of the body or being aware of the breath or being aware of the feeling or being aware of the mind in and of itself. You know, not in terms of the world, not in terms of our concept, but what is this experience of feeling, this experience of this mind state, in and of itself, without our interpretations, that the actual experience, in and of itself. So this is really useful to know, because uh, it's so uh, taught so much in this tradition about letting go of the world. It's just seems so reasonable to think that the world is dangerous or bad, that actually by letting go of our attachment, our infatuation with the body, our infatuation with our thoughts, our infatuation with what we see, our infatuation with what we touch and smell and taste and hear, then actually we're able to really show up (coughs) and be engaged and be responsive. So instead of the letting go of infatuation sort of making us some isolated, you know, rug where the whole world walks all over us. We're just flat and indifferent. That's not what the Buddha is pointing to. By letting go of attachment and infatuation and disgust and reactivity, it really allows us to engage the world with love, with compassion with a wholehearted, wise, responsive presence. That's the opposite of attachment, or clinging, or reactivity. The opposite of reactivity is not being afraid to be awake, to be responsive. So anytime you think that the teachings, the practice is about getting more and more indifferent, holding back, the world being a bad place, then that's called aversion or fear. That's exactly why we practice, to go beyond that tendency of the mind. And the reason why it seems that way is because we get involved in the world with attachment and we get burned, right? Because we're clinging to something and then it's taken away from us. We really want this person to like us and then he or she insults us and we feel betrayed. And then we 
then we're disgusted by the world, and we don't want to be dependent on the world anymore. And then we think we're being spiritual, but we're just disgusted by the world. And so, we want something else. So, rejecting the world is just another craving. We can crave this relationship, and then we can crave to be free of it. But both are equally cravings, attachments, fixations. And they're suffering. So, the path isn't about rejecting the world, and the path isn't about being dependent on the world. The path is about being where we are, with, and right now we're right in the middle of things. You know, we're exactly right in the middle of our life. There's nowhere else we can be. And so the question is, how to be free, given that we're going to be right in the middle of this life, that's just how it is, how to be free? Well, being disgusted by our life situation is not freedom. Being a dependent on things being a particular way, that's not freedom either. So without being dependent on things being any particular way, and without being afraid, without needing to distance ourselves in any way, to close down in any way, then we get a sense of what freedom is, by being wide open. This is what we practice in our mindfulness practice. You know, we're practicing being wide open, not afraid of anything. So, in a sense, we can say that we're using mindfulness in two ways. <clears throat> we're using mindfulness, first and foremost, you know, as we develop our practice, what mindfulness reveals, just being present, is we're seeing how all of the different places we're attached, that they're limited. You know, you just, how many times do we have to go home thinking, God, I can't wait till I make dinner, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to stop and pick up that. I'm going to go there and eat. You know, how many meals have we had now in our life? Anybody keep track? A lot, you know. I'm 54 now times 365 times, you know, two, three times a day. That's a lot of meals. And each time it's like this promise, like, oh. And then there's a little bit of satisfaction as we're eating. And not even through the whole meal, because generally at some point we've eaten enough, but we're not satisfied, so we keep eating, thinking that even though we're full, if I just eat a little bit more, then I'll be happy. Well, that didn't satisfy me, so maybe something sweet. I did, I did the salt thing, maybe I'll try a sour thing, you know, or I did the, you know, I did the tomatoey thing, now I'll do this thing. And we're looking for some ultimate satisfaction. But it doesn't come from food, does it? You know, a lot of us have had different kinds of sexual experiences or different kinds of entertainments. You know, how many books have we read? How many movies have we seen? How many different kinds of experiences have we tried, have we consumed in order to be content, in order to be satisfied, maybe got a little satisfaction, some of the time at least, and then it like slips right through our fingers because it isn't long before we want to be satisfied again. So all that satisfaction is just temporary. So are we going to let this fact sink in a little bit? And this is what mindfulness reveals by being more present in life, balanced, clear, relaxed, basic mindfulness in daily life, and in sitting, we just see naturally, this is not, you know, this is just a common insight. We see that the life we're living the worldly existence is limited. That's just what it is. It's uncertain, it's limited, 
And that's just what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not a betrayal. It's not that we're doing something wrong. That part of the fabric of conditioned reality is it's limited. It's always uncertain. It's always changing. Experiences are, are always ephemeral. Even the best experiences are ephemeral. Those moments when you and one of your partners, you know, were just in bliss land, it was that way for a while, and then it changed. And uh, if we try to hold on to some really nice experience, that is suffering, right? Or if we try to avoid it when we're moving to something that's difficult or challenging, that fear, that avoidance, that's also suffering. So, the first place that mindfulness really supports our well-being is we see that the world is limited and we start changing our relationship to this conditioned, limited world. Hating it doesn't work. Being dependent or attached to it doesn't work. So we start having a more neutral, equanimous relationship. We're not afraid of sense, pleasant sense experiences when they come our way. We enjoy them as temporary pleasant experiences, but we're not confused thinking that this relationship, this meal, this promotion is somehow going to make me happy. It's not. It's just pleasant for a while, and then it's not. And so that's called the initial sort of insights in practice. It's just being more skillful in life, living in a limited way. But that's not where the practice ends. There's a whole another dimension, I guess we could say, where as we're learning to be more in balance, living in this conditioned, limited world that we live in, we've always lived in, it's always been this way, now we're just living more in alignment with the limitations and the conditional changing nature of our lives. Now, because we're more in alignment, the mind's more balanced. And in that more balanced state, there's more clarity and we begin to intuit something of freedom, of peace. You know, the Buddha uses much more profound words like a deliverance, a liberation, that's always been here, but it has been obscured because of the mind's continual uh, attempt to be satisfied with things that are fundamentally limited. Because that's been our orientation for so long, and the Buddha says, from a beginningless time. You know, so he's got this cosmological view that we've been doing this for a long time. This mind stream of ours, life after life. Now, you don't have to believe that. It's not about believing it or not. But it's just a nice image, at least, at the very least, that this mind stream has been at this a very long time, seeking to be satisfied with things that are fundamentally not able to deliver satisfaction because they're limited. They're changing. And so... Because that attempt to get satisfied with something that's limited has been so obscuring, we've missed something that's very obvious when the mind isn't obsessed with finding satisfaction in what's fundamentally limited. So when we're equanimous with this limited world, they are right in the middle of it. Because if we're fighting it, if we're hiding from it, that's not equanimous. The only way to be equanimous with this limited world is to be right in the middle of your life showing up in the moment that's actually arising for you. This body, this mind, this life circumstance, then that's the only place to be equanimous. So if you're balanced, present, and relaxed there, 
because you're not, uh, the mind isn't following that habit of reactivity, then something begins to be intuited, an essential freedom, an essential liberation or peace, wholeness, that's always been here, but the mind has been unaware of. Like the Buddha says, the heart is essentially, inherently radiant and pure. But this freedom, this essential freedom has been obscured because of these visiting defilements, these habits of reactivity, of clinging. So, this is the other thing that mindfulness reveals. And where is it? Well, in Buddhism we call it the unconditioned, because that liberation, that freedom, isn't in objects that are being known. This relationship, this thought, this sense experience, because those things are fundamentally, fundamentally limited. And the best way to, you know, and it's just a, analogy, but the best way I find to describe it with words is to think about the space of the room. You know, we have two options. You know, we're existing here in this space. You could call it the space of this room or more generally the space of the present moment. We're all here right now in the space of the present moment that our orientation, because of our habits, our orientation is we're interested in what's happening in this room, like what I'm thinking in this room, what I'm seeing in this room, what I'm hearing in this room. The mind is strongly conditioned to pay attention to the activity that's happening in the space of this room, right? Does it make sense? But our mind is not conditioned to intuit that there is space. So just do that now. Instead of being concerned about what's happening here or what's being known here, just intuit that there is a here here. You know, there's the space of now, the space of my heart, the space of my life. So there is this space. Now, we can't really grasp that, can we? Because... If it's something we can take a hold of, then it's something that's being known in the space. But the space can't be known. But in a sense, with confidence, with faith, we can learn to rest. We can learn to take refuge in the space of the heart, in the space of the room, in the space of now. So in a way, we have, we have the possibility of two allegiances. We can be in allegiance to the activity of the present moment, what's happening, what's being known, what's being seen, what's being thought, what's being felt in terms of emotion, what's being heard, smelled or tasted. Or we can be, we can develop this allegiance, this intuition into the space, the silent, empty, open, loving, space. Now, the concept's not going to do you much good, but the realization will change your life. Now, remember, the way that that, what you could say, the ultimate refuge is realized is first, we have to, with mindfulness, recognize the limitations of the world we're living in, the life we're living 
And in recognizing the limitations, the heart begins to become more and more equanimous. It's not expecting the world to deliver happiness. Life to deliver happiness. And it's not, it's not considering that life is inherently bad because it's not delivering happiness. It was never the purpose of life to deliver happiness. That's not what thoughts do. You know, thoughts are part of a survival mechanism. They're not there to deliver happiness. Relationships aren't there to deliver happiness. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant, sometimes thoughts are pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant, sometimes sounds are pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant. Same with everything. So we have this equanimous relationship with the world. We're fully there in the middle, which is the only place to be equanimous. And then we have this little seed that we get from our instructions, from our teacher, the Buddha, who says, hey, and, and while you're there in the middle of your life with equanimity, fully present, relaxed, clear, be on the lookout for this deepening intuition into an inherent peace. A peace that you don't, you didn't create and you don't have to do anything to make it true. Or a peace of freedom, a liberation, something that's already here. And like the Buddha says, this is a realization. It's not something you can talk yourself into, because that would be a thought that's being known. And then you'd get dependent on it, and then you'd be disappointed. Because a thought is not going to lead to deliverance or freedom. It will lead to disappointment. Because things of the world always, if you cling to them, always lead to disappointment. Because they're always uncertain and changing. That's just their nature. But there's something that isn't changing, but it can't be grasped. The ego can't take a hold of it. So, in order to intuit this, the ego has to let go of this wanting to grasp, wanting security. The ego will never be secure. Because the ego is part of this conditioned world. It's something that's made up. It's like a thought. You know, so a thought will always be ephemeral. It will always come and go. So, whatever we take the ego to be, it's part of that mental construction. It comes and goes. We literally, the mind is literally constructing the sense of self and then it passes away and then we construct another sense of self and it passes away. Even today in our day, how many senses of selves have we constructed? And sometimes in some moments today, the sense of self was like, I'm a secure person. You know, and then other moments, the self we constructed was, I'm a defensive person. You know, I'm a neurotic person. I'm an expansive person. I'm a really contracted person. Think about how many different people we were today. Because each of those constructions were just some mind state, you know, that built on emotion and concepts and ideas and images, and it had a certain coherence, and we took it to be self, but it was just a construction of the mind that came and went. So that thing can never grasp, never take a hold of freedom. Freedom is realized when we're not confused by the workings of the ego. We're not afraid of the ego. We don't need to kill the ego. We just don't need to be, we need to practice not being confused by the movement of the ego. Just let it do what it does. It's going to continue anyway. Just like the noise around us is going to continue. The world around us is going to continue. The different conditioning of our mind from our culture, from our genetics, it's also going to continue. And we don't need to make it into a problem. We need to be equanimous. 
And then we realize, little by little, this gradual awakening to the unconditioned, to essential freedom. And then that's a whole nother level of release. The first release is just how to be skillful in a conditioned world. How not to grasp, not to react as much as we are conditioned to react. We just come into balance, basically, in this changing world that we can't control. But that's not the whole path. That's just the beginning. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. You might have some thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or questions. What comes to mind? Yeah, say your name, please. for sharing that, Sarah, is that what you said? Thank you, Sarah. That's such a powerful point. And, uh, and it's also, you know, you're pointing out that there can be, if there's enough perspective and support, there can be real blessings in difficult situations like divorces, breakups, job loss, or even just your career being suspended. Because we don't realize how much the sense of self is dependent on something until it goes away. Like we're healthy and then all of a sudden we're not healthy. And then all of a sudden we realize that. Or just the poignancy that, like you said, of, well then who am I if I'm not this artist? If I'm not performing and kind of deriving the sense of self from that satisfaction of a beautiful performance and the high that comes from that? And, uh, well, who am I? Where is my refuge? And we need to go to that new space. We really, it's that uncomfortable space. Because when life is too easy for us, and we've had too many strings of success, we actually are at a disadvantage in the practice. Because you need a lot of curiosity when you've just had nothing but success in your life to continue your practice. And it's not, you have no incentive to be curious when everything's going your way. (laughs) So it's, take advantage of the, and you know you can even take advantage of the difficulties that arise for your friends because you can look at their lives and you realize, that could happen to me. And then, so we don't have to wait until it does happen to us. We can start learning the lessons because we know what's possible. One of my best friends just found out today her cancer has returned, and uh, not a good, good prognosis at all. And uh, you know, just that shock. She's not that much older than I am. That oh, so now it's just a matter of time. I mean, it's always that way for us. It's just a matter of time. But all of a sudden, it's really poignant. 
as you might imagine. And for them especially, her family especially, overwhelming. You know, and to be able to not be surprised when this happens. That doesn't mean we don't want to be moved. Even the Buddha, you know, in, in terms of Moggallana and Sariputta dying, the Buddha said, it's as if the sun and moon have been removed from the sky. I mean, that's a very poignant way to speak about loss. But to be able to feel that, the sort of impact of that loss, but not be confused by the pain. See, that's the difference. We're not saying that we shouldn't feel the pain. We shouldn't feel what it's like to be alive. But we're not confused by what we feel. So when people insult us, we're still going to feel the pain of that, but we're not surprised. We're not confused by it. That would be ideal. So all of a sudden, the orchestra is out of work for a while, hopefully, but we're not surprised by it. Well, I didn't expect it always to be this way. And now, yep, it isn't this way. Thanks again for sharing that. What else comes to mind? Yeah. Did you hear her? Sue said that somebody she knows well accidentally killed their dog. Yeah, he has two things, doesn't he? He has the, the very real, powerful pain of loss, obviously some, something that was very close and important in his life, and a kind of dependency on it that he didn't realize again until it was gone. And then he has that other pain of guilt and remorse, probably, from being involved in the death of the dog. But we can now, in hindsight, and it's not easy, and maybe you can help Sue, but in hindsight, he can understand that given everything that was at play, it couldn't be other than what it was. That we have to be able to see how things unfolded as a natural, interdependent process. Because if what he thinks is that I did this, that's a very superficial explanation for what happened. I'm not saying that he didn't do it, but what do we mean that I or he did it? Well, that he was just this interdependent, you know, these different patterns that were at play. All these different forces, interdependent forces, that made up the way it was at that time that led to this thing happening. So we have to reflect back and see, it's not about somebody making a mistake, it's about natural forces unfolding naturally. And sometimes they unfold in ways that are deeply painful. And other times they unfold in ways that are deeply beautiful. And that's just how it is.
pointed. Well, usually in doses, because generally big events, the pain, we don't trust it. So we're not going to open it, open to it completely. But well, just the... Yeah, yeah, he might, you know, people need different ways to skillfully distract themselves because we can't always handle the pain that's arisen in our life and we need to take it in, in doses. But I wanted to say something about the story because I think it is, it will help people to tell a story that feels better, you know, like maybe the dog chose this time. But we don't, but the trouble about the mind getting dependent on that story, then it's threatened by other stories that might come in. You know, or maybe if I had just paid attention more, I would, that wouldn't have happened or something like that. So, we don't want to be dependent on any story. We want to be like, whatever it was, whatever did happen, that's okay. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that that's what we wanted to have happen, but that this heart has the capacity to open to this, to feel this. It may take a while, but we want to hold out, like just as a general value going home tonight, to have this value that this aspiration that this heart or this mind is capable of receiving life as it actually comes, as it actually unfolds for us. That we don't have to ever fall into the belief that, no, it can't be this way. Well, why not? Maybe sometimes it's going to be this way. You know, that I actually ran over my dog and I was distracted. I was obsessed about something and I didn't do what I normally did do, which is know where the dog is before I back out of the driveway or whatever. Because we do do something that are, in a sense, the result of being spaced out on the cell phone or, you know, whatever. So does that mean if we did it and we were somehow responsible that we can't forgive ourselves? But because the dog chose, then we can forgive ourselves. You know what I mean? It's like we should have, we should realize the heart that can forgive ourselves, forgive whomever, regardless of whether we were being careless or we were being careful. Because everything is understandable. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel regret. There's actually nothing wrong with feeling regret, that pain of regret. Like, I want to be really careful so I never cause harm again. We can turn that into a lot of self-hatred. That doesn't help. But we can use that pain in the heart to make us much more sensitive in the world. Like, it's really easy to cause harm in this world. Maybe I shouldn't be on my cell phone when I'm driving, you know. Maybe I should respect that driving is dangerous and really sort of be present with it. And when I'm not, when my mind's scattered, maybe pull over for a while and take some deep breaths. Or when I'm talking to somebody, it's another place where we just cause so much harm because we're not really present when we're talking, and we end up saying things that are deeply hurtful to people. Anybody do that? <laughs> All of us, probably. Maybe time for one more comment or question, if there's something. Yeah. Well, no, but but wouldn't that be a nice aspiration? It's like, I can't love unconditionally, but I can absolutely aspire to love unconditionally, right? 
And that's a beautiful aspiration, and it makes sense to aspire to be able to be compassionate. But I notice in some situations my heart closes down because somebody's pain or suffering scares me on some primitive level, and I can't be unconditionally compassionate. But I can aspire for that, and I can also aspire to open to my own suffering unconditionally, even though I can't do that now, but I can aspire to that. So that's, we want to distinguish between kind of where we're at in terms of our level of skill and confidence, but but hold out. It's really important to hold out that aspiration. That's why it's nice to have symbols, like the Buddha. He, We don't really know the Buddha, of course, but why not have some symbol that represents what's possible for us human beings in terms of compassion and wisdom? We need to leave it here. It's then a clock to take our moment, let go of the words. It's always nice to just appreciate a few moments of silence. And appreciating this possibility of deep insight and freedom and great skill in the world. So may this be so, this capacity to be wide open, alive, loving, and wise. And may our lives be the cause for real peace and happiness in the world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight.